Our Father, we do rejoice in that precious story of your word, which is the coming of the Lamb of glory. To go to the cross where blood would flow to pay for the price for our sin, we stand in him forgiven and complete. We stand in him confident that we are yours and we belong to you by your sovereign grace. And we are assured that every promise in him is yes and amen and we will be received into our eternal home because of you, O Christ, who have gone before us, who is now preparing a place for us in the presence of God. And you who have gone to prepare a place for us will return to us and bring us to yourself that where you are, we may be also. Encourage our hearts with these precious words. And teach us now as we open your word and prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper, which is a celebration of what you've done and an anticipation of what you are going to do in establishing your kingdom. To that end, we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and open up your Bibles, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, yes, we are making our way back to Ecclesiastes. And yes, it is the goal to finish this. Uh, Hopefully by spring, not that we want to rush through, but uh, just to give you a framework, and then we'll take a bit of a break and begin Revelation, hopefully by summer, which we will be for quite some time, I imagine. But I'm eager to get there. But for now, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 14 this morning. Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 14. And by way of introduction, I would make just the simple uh, reminder that One thing that is evident in our culture, we say this all the time because it is such a dominant reality. It is such a pervasive, perennial, ongoing struggle and reality of our culture. And namely that is that we find endless ways to distract ourselves from what is important and what is true. From reality, really. That's the whole idea of entertainment is to take us someplace else, to engulf us and immerse us into a story that gets us outside of ourselves and is meant to affect and direct our emotions and our thinking and the way that we view this world. It is intentional. And we love it so. We enjoy that and we as a culture embrace that and we get lost in fantasy and seem very often unconcerned, not only unable... For a variety of reasons to think clearly, but unconcerned to think clearly, unmotivated to think clearly. Uh, Things just aren't that important. Whatever is new on Netflix or whatever we can binge is, is more important than thinking about eternal issues. Eternal issues. And that is part what, in part, what Ecclesiastes uh, causes us to think about this morning in verses 1 through 14. And the main idea in these verses, if I could put it in a statement, is this. That spiritual wisdom embraces the shortness of life and the sovereignty of God. And that should cause us to grow in character and in contentment. So wisdom embraces the shortness of life, in other words, death. The sovereignty of God over all things in his creation, including the individual details of our lives. And by grasping that, our character should be shaped and formed in righteousness and our contentment increased in this ever-shifting and changing world. We'll look at this in two broad categories. One is that wisdom in light, wisdom in light of our weakness in verses 1 through 9 and then wisdom in light of God's sovereignty in verses 10 through 14. Now, another thing you probably get tired of me saying is that uh, I hope to make it all the way through. I certainly intended to do so, but that means I'll have to edit as we go. So. But that is the goal, 
to finish that this morning. Let's begin by reading the passage. So Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 14. A good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man. And the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. And the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool, and this too is futility. For oppression makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. And the end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why is, the former days, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. And so is the wisdom of God through Solomon. Now, you are, can tell by the way that it's written in your Bibles that this is written as proverbial kind of language. It is, in fact, uh, some considered by some uh, just a string of fairly unconnected proverbial statements. And certainly there is an element of that character there. But it is uh, much more connected uh, than some realize, uh, I think, and, and of course others. There is definitely here a theme. The theme, as in all of Ecclesiastes and much of the writing of Solomon, is wisdom. And there, is, there are many pithy statements by which uh, we are directed in how to live wisely in light of who God is and his kingdom. But it is easily, or I think helpfully, divided up, this isn't sacrosanct, but into these two categories, as I mentioned. The first, wisdom in light of our weakness, and then wisdom in light of God's sovereignty. But what stands over it all is living wisely under the providence of God, knowing that we have but a short time here. Let's consider the first section here, then. Wisdom in light of our weakness. Wisdom in light of our weakness in verses 1 through 9. He begins with what is more or less an introductory statement, uh, something that captures the theme, I believe, of what will run all the way through, through verses 9, through verse 9. And it is this, a good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. A good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of death is better than the day of one's birth. A seemingly odd statement at first... But it is, again, what he's going to unfold for us. And remember, this comes in the context of him addressing the mysteries of life. Just before this, he said in verse 12 of chapter 6, Who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? 
Since we do not know what will befall us, as he said earlier in that same verse, we don't even know what is best for us. What we can pursue in wisdom is a good name, and we can do so by remembering that death is the end of it all. Now, the basic idea in a lot of Solomon's themes in Ecclesiastes is this, verse 1 anyway, that a legacy of honor and hope for the future are achieved only at death in a life well lived under God's hand. A legacy of honor that is a good name, a legacy that stands confident in hope for the future, is achieved only at death, at the end of life, and of a life lived well under the sovereign hand of God. So we do well, is the basic idea, to think about the end. And by doing so, we develop spiritual character. A name here, of course, as you're familiar with, is not merely an identification marker. It's not merely, you know, Samuel, John, Elizabeth, or whatever. Name speaks of the totality of a person, of their character, of their personality, of their lives, of the totality or the sum of their life, really. And to have a good name is to have a name that is marked by integrity and faithfulness. It is the greatest heritage that one can leave. It is more important than Riches, the things that the world so often values. Solomon will say earlier in Proverbs 22.1, A good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. More than all the wealth of the world is a life that is secure in its integrity and in its faithfulness, particularly from a biblical perspective. So that would be integrity before God. Integrity to the covenant. One has said that a, great, a good name is better than a great name. You know, that's, a good name is better than a great name. What is a great name? A great name is those we see who are boisterous, who are loud, who achieve for honor in the eyes of men, whether it be through wealth, whether it be through power, whether it be through great achievements of a variety of kinds. They want to be remembered. They want to be remembered as great. They want to have their name in the Hall of Fame, as it were, written on plaques on the side of buildings, remembered in history books and for all the generations yet to come. That is a great name, and many have a great name. But what is better than a great name from an eternal perspective is a good name. Is a good name. That is the legacy that God's people would want to leave. A name that is good. That is to say, a life that spoke of our character. That engenders not only honor and love, but confidence to meet death as he calls us here to do. As something to be not avoided in our thoughts but to be welcomed in essence that we can face it because our character showed itself to be the fruit of the working of God and the only conclusion then is that this name isn't ever secured and settled until we die why because it can always be lost in the process in the meantime it's not the one who begins well, you hear often. It is the one who ends well. It is the one who completes their task successfully that has earned the right to a good name. To fail along the way uh, can ruin all the good that one did previously in their life. It is to remain to the end faithful. And in that sense, the day of death is better than the day of one's birth. Why? Because the task is complete. And the assumption is that death will not lead to judgment, but that death will lead into a fulfillment of the covenant promises, into the good that God has in store for those who belong to him. 
It is a good name that can help one face death with confidence, that can help one face death with the assurance that they are secured and ready to be in God's presence. Thomas Boston, an old Puritan writer, said this, In the day of his birth he was born to die, speaking of man, and in the day of his death he dies to live. Death is a reality that hangs over all humanity. It is unavoidable. In 1 Corinthians 15, 26, Paul says, do you remember, he calls it what? The great enemy. It is the last enemy to be defeated, death, when he brings his kingdom. But for now, it is something that hangs over all humanity. It's something that most of the world likes to avoid because it produces fear, as the writer of Hebrews mentions, that it is fear of death that Satan uses in the lives of unbelievers. It is something to be avoided because it is too depressing or by some it is a hindrance to the present fun we can have and the goals of life. To the Christian, however, death is to be faced with anticipation, not the manner of death, not the mode of death, not that, but the reality of passing, the reality of moving beyond this life into the next, the reality of ending our experience here to begin the one that God has promised and prepared for us to enter into that kingdom of which we are truly citizens. And that's why Paul could say, barring in a sense the language here, not that he was consciously doing so, but that it does, is that it is better to depart and to be with Christ. It is better. There's work that we have here to do, and we need to do it while we're here, but it is better to depart and to be with Christ. How many have you heard, or maybe we've said ourselves, that you know, I'm just not ready for Christ to return yet. I want to finish school. I want to have a family. I want whatever, the experience in this world. That's not from a biblical perspective that we say those things. From a biblical perspective, we anticipate. We are thankful for every blessing that God gives us in between. But none of the things that we experience here compares to what God has prepared for those who love him. And so wisdom considers the reality of death. Look at verses 2 through 4. Wisdom then considers the reality of death. It doesn't shrink away from it. It intentionally thinks about it and considers it if we are to be wise. And so he says, then it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. Now note, he does not say, as one has brought out, the wise man does not say that it is sweeter, but that it is better to go to the house of mourning. He doesn't say that going to the house of the morning is more fun or delightful to the soul. He says it is the place we go to gain wisdom. And wisdom then is what is best for the soul. It is the best to gain a right perspective on this world and to live rightly before God. We know this is a general principle of scripture. That wisdom is gained and maturity is achieved even as Hebrews 5 indicated through trial. Through testing, as we respond in faith in the adversities of life. And so he says it is wiser. This is counsel that to many of us and certainly to our generation, that is counterintuitive and it sees foolish. Again, why? Because most of the world wants to do everything it can to avoid that reality. To not think about it. And that, again, is one of the great dangers of being constantly distracted. Of being constantly distracted. It is our flesh's natural inclination to pursue whatever brings immediate pleasure and gratification. But it's one of the threats to the soul. Just as a general comment here, 
If we are to gain this kind of wisdom, it takes intentionality. One has to make a choice. One has to make a choice to pursue wisdom. It doesn't happen by osmosis. It's not going to happen just by listening to sermons, just by reading your Bible. It is something that we have to respond to in our soul. And so he's saying here it is wise to go to a house of mourning rather than a house of feasting. In other words, it is wise to make the choice to expose yourself to that which will teach you wisdom and thinking according to reality than those things that will move you further away from ultimate things. It's a kind of maturity that he recalls for here. And of course the principle again applies to more than just where we go. The principle applies to everything that we do. Everything we expose ourselves to. The relationships we expose ourselves to. The content we expose ourselves to. Is it something that causes us to think more you know, in accordance with what is going to be, what is true? Or does it move us away from it? Does it move us away from it? And ultimately, then, the reality of death should shape our priorities of life. The reality of death should shape our priorities of life. And for it to do so, then we have to consider death. And as he says at the end of verse 2, we have to take it to heart. We have to take it to heart. You know, that should be our prayer. Do you ever pray for that? Do you ever pray and say, God, help me to realize the brevity of my life so that my priorities can be ordered according to wisdom? Do you ever pray and say, God, help me to realize how short this world is so that I can have my affections on the things that are most in accord with your will? The psalmist prayed that, Psalm 39.4. He said, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Let me know how transient I am. Again, that stands in direct contrast to the inclination of the fallen mind, which doesn't want to think about how transient we are, but wants to do everything it can to grasp to have some kind of permanence here. But the wise says, no, let me know how transient I am so I'm not distracted from the most important things, those things that should be governing and ruling my life. It says it again in Psalm 90 verse 12, Psalm of Moses, he says, Teach us to number our days, why? That we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. According to 2015, for some reason I could not find earlier or later than uh, 2015, but according to 2015 statistics, statistics uh, official statistics, in Connecticut there were 30,520 deaths. Now, I don't know if they rounded. Was there 21 or 22? I don't know. But they say there's 30,520 deaths divided by 365 days. That means there were 84 deaths per day in Connecticut in 2015. We can assume that it is at least the same or more or very close today. 84 people just in the small state of Connecticut every single day leave this world and enter into the next. It is a fact that is witnessed regularly by us. There's these signposts that we pass all the time. Do you know what I'm talking about? Graveyards. Graveyards. You drive everywhere and you see graveyards. You see old graveyards. I, I noticed one not too long ago. It was just, it was getting off on an exit. And it was just a little corner of a land, uh, land between all the busyness of the other stuff. And it were all these gravestones, these old headstones that were up. 
Every one of those is like a voice crying out to us to say, realize your days are numbered. Realize that your time here is short. Have you ever walked by a graveyard and tried to think of your name on the headstone? Have you ever done? You should try that. Go into a graveyard and realize that someday somebody else that you never met or maybe one of your family members is going to be standing in that spot and reading the dates. Is going to be reading your name and whatever you decide to write on it. What will it say? What will it say? That is a reality. And you go, that's morbid. No, it's not. It's wisdom. It's wisdom. And it's reality. It's not something we can avoid. We can avoid thinking about it, but we can't avoid it coming. We can't avoid it happening. And that's what Solomon calls us to. Realize that that is your end. It is the end, as he says in verse 2, of every man. It is unavoidable. Death and taxes are two inescapable experiences of this life. You will die. You will have a gravestone with your name on it. And it will have a beginning date, and it will have an end date. And so it is with the wise, as we consider that everything in this world has a termination point, including our very lives, including all of those things that we feel secure in. And we don't know when that end point is going to be. And so Jesus calls on that and says... Well, we live in an evil world. We could have the experience of natural evil, where just the calamities of nature and a fallen creation can overtake us, whether it be flood, whether it be fires, whether it be tornadoes, whether it be hurricanes, whether it be drowning, whether it be whatever. That can overtake us. And then there's a moral evil that can overtake us. Those things that are directly the act of evil deeds, Luke 13 What about those on whom the Tower of Siloam fell? That's natural evil. It just is something that happened. It's an event. What about those whose blood Pilate mixed at the altar? That's moral evil. He he committed an atrocity, an act of murder. In either case, Jesus says, consider. And what does he tell us to consider? What is the warning there? Do you remember? Repent. Repent. For you do not know when your life is going to end. Repent. Repent and turn to follow God and his word. In that case, to follow the Messiah, to receive him as he is. And when we think about the end of life, if you are an unbeliever here today or as we interact with unbelievers, that is the call. Realize that there is an end and as he ends the the book of Ecclesiastes, there is an end and then comes the judgment. And so to live wisely, we think about that. To live wisely... We would repent. Now certainly that is an un- for an unbeliever unto life, but that is then also for a believer unto our sanctification. That we should remember that the kingdom to which we belong is a kingdom of holiness and righteousness and purity. And we want to live consistent with it. And in realizing our end helps put all of that in perspective and helps us. And so he says in verse 3, Sorrow then is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. And so the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. You know, some Christians, maybe you've had this idea, I can remember early on having thinking this to some degree, is that our testimony to the world, in order to show the world 
Christ in our life, we have to be giddy happy all the time. Have you ever met Christians who think like that? They just have to be giddy happy all the time. And that's showing that we're happy in Jesus. I'm happy. How's that song go? Happy in, anyway, here's the song. Happy in Jesus. Uh, I don't know if when I sing that song or I hear it uh, sung, I'm thinking to myself, ah, not all the time. Not really. It should be maybe more than I am. But it's not about happiness as the world would think of happiness. The idea of joy and spiritual joy includes the idea of happiness, but it is profoundly more than that. Jesus, who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, knew joy deeper than anyone. And so he says here, but sorrow is better than laughter, but sometimes Christians act as if just being smiley and happy and giddy all the time is what should mark the Christian to prove our faith. Again, we should have joy, we should have contentment, gentleness, and we should know the happiness that God designs out of his good gifts and his kind providences to us. But the Christian, more than any other, recognizes the sorrows, the sadness, and the suffering of the world because of sin more than any other. The Christian feels that, and you'll notice that as someone grows and matures as a Christian, the silliness in their life gets less and less and less. There's a certain sobriety that comes about to the maturing Christian because they've lived longer with their own sin and they've seen the sin and the tragedy that it brings into the world. And it sobers them. It makes them think more circumspectly. It makes them more considerate, more compassionate, hopefully, because they realize what it brings. The Christians realize that this is a world under sin and it Again, it doesn't mean we don't have joy, but it means that our joy is tempered by the fact that the world is not what it should be. And all that is ours is not yet here. It's coming. One said of this, uh, So valuable, so needful is it that we doubt whether it be safe to be without sorrow until we are without sin. He wonders whether it's safe to be without sorrow until there is no sin. So we could say to one who has the idea that a sort of giddiness is the mark of true spirituality that never gets too affected by things, we would wonder, have you ever felt the reality of sin in your own heart? Have you ever seen it in others? And so this is what Solomon calls, he says, sorrow is better than laughter because sorrow makes us more wise He's not saying here that there is no time for laughter, there's no time for joy, there's no time for celebration. As a matter of fact, Scripture is full of those things. Jesus himself went to celebrations. There were, there were times to, and events to be happy, and there's times and events to be lighthearted with one another. But the idea here is that's not the character of our life, that we're known, that that, that kind of superficiality is what should mark us. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, a mark of the being in the kingdom, you'll remember this, is what? Poor in spirit, mourning over our sin, we shall be comforted. That's a mark of one who realizes the realities of this world. Paul himself, who knew joy, who knew happiness, who knew graciousness, who knew kindness, who knew peace, said, we, as with all of creation, groan within ourselves. Waiting and anticipating the freedom of the glory of the sons of God. The freedom that we will be brought into. 
So we groan now, but we groan with a sense of hope, not despair. We groan knowing that we will be set free into the freedom of the children of God. We groan knowing that the Spirit takes our feeble prayers as we walk in life, our feeble prayers in Christ to the Father. We groan, but we know that God is sovereignly working all things to the good of our souls. And we groan knowing that whatever tragedy comes upon us here, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so that's where we are. That's what he calls us to here. And again, I want to emphasize, this is not a dour and sad and, you know, gloomy looking, I wear black all the time, like Christians are little Johnny Cashes walking around, you know, the man in black, you know, for all of the downbeaten and the downtrodden and those who can't. I like the song, but uh, that shouldn't model a Christian. We're not dour. We're not lifeless. We don't wear black and veils and sad. We're not funless. We're not bores. Hopefully, we have joy and happiness. But again, what the point that Solomon's making is that our joy and happiness is tempered and measured by the reality and light of our true hope in Christ. And sorrow points us there. It's sorrow, it points us there. And so when we have trials, we can have joy. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result. Let it do its work in us. So wisdom does not minimize the reality of sin is the idea here, but it acknowledges it. And it's something that the world cannot always understand. Notice what he says, sorrow is better than laughter, but for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The general idea here is simply this, that the appearance on the outside is, always not, is not always the truest indicator of what's being experienced in the soul. It's not always the truest indicator of what is being experienced in the soul. So the Christian, in the context of what Solomon is saying here, although I'm putting the idea of Christian back here, but just say the people of God, in Solomon's mindset, can go to the house of mourning, can embrace the sorrows of this world, and no gain wisdom from it. But that doesn't mean that they're, they're walking around in this gloominess. It might appear that way, but in reality, there is a great joy of wisdom. There's the contentment and the solitude of wisdom. There is the assurance of wisdom to guide us uh, in this life and to order our affections and our priorities. He moves on then to character. So if we were to take that verse 1 as a marker, uh, which I I do as I was going through this, uh, to say that a good name is better than a good ointment, the day of one's death is better than the, the day of one's birth. The first part, he starts with the latter, then he talks about why is it better than the day of, the day of death, better than birth. One is because we've completed the race, and so we are wise to think about that day so that we can complete that race. And then number two, a good name, speaking of character, he begins addressing in verse 5. Thinking about that, Realizing the shortness of life then should produce a life that's growing in the character of God. So if we were to put a big title over these next few verses is that wisdom cultivates character in life. Wisdom cultivates character in life. Verse 5, it's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. Better to receive the rebuke or listen to the rebuke of a wise man than to listen to the song of a fool, fools. When we are rebuked, it is an expression of God's love to us. It's an expression of God's love to us. Do you think of that? When somebody rebukes you, 
rightly or exposes sin, that that is an expression of God's love for you. It's an expression of his care and his kindness for you. Uh, do you think I'm making that up? Not. Let me give you just a few examples here in Proverbs 3. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves. Even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights, how blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares to her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant. Her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her and happy are all who hold her. And how does that wisdom come? Through correction. The rebuke, that's in part how it comes. And what is the end of it? Is that it brings peace when we gain by it. It brings honor. It brings joy. He repeats this and you say, that's, a, that's an Old Testament idea. Now we, we live in grace. God never rebukes us or disciplines us because everything's just happy-go-lucky. He wants everything to go smoothingly, but that's not what Hebrews tells us. Reflecting on Proverbs 3, it says it is for discipline that you endure. Remember, when he's talking here about discipline you endure, he's talking about those who are in threat of their lives being taken, who've had their possessions taken, who were in danger of falling away from the faith because of the cost that was being presented to them. Not because they got stuck in traffic or something minor like that, but he says these are those who were experiencing by God's sovereign hand severe things for their faith. But he says, It is for discipline that you endure, for God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You know, just as a, as a little as a comment there, uh, in our own lives, if you are a Christian, is it not true that when you sin and you receive the discipline of the Lord in whatever form that comes in, that you are grateful and moved to praise and thanksgiving? If I sin when I have sinned, well, I mean I sin daily, so I don't have to go too far back, right? <laughs> it's really it's like this morning. Uh, but when we sin, and God is patient with so much of it, but when we sin and we have the experience of a specific rebuke of God for our sin, that should produce in us great gratitude. I belong to him. God cares about my holiness. God is not going to let me stray down a path of wickedness too far. He has pulled me back. He has disciplined me. He has humbled me. And oftentimes God uses others to do that. And we should be thankful for that. But let me, let me finish. We'll come back. He says, if you are without discipline, if somebody, if, if somebody can sin, if you in your own life or you know somebody who can live in wanton sin and rejection of righteousness and have no problems, that's not a good thing. Sometimes people take that as God's favor. Hey, look, it's great. I stand in grace, right? Actually, it's a view of God's judgment individually and as a nation. So in Romans 1... You reject, you reject, what does God do? He gives over, says, hey, great. You want sexual freedom? Have it to as much as you want. Go for it. You want no respect for honor and authority? Go for it. Have it. Be my guest. But realize you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. 
God is calling out for repentance, but if it's rejected, then it is, then it is tragic. But the reality is that for God's own children, when we sin, there is discipline, and it's an expression of his love. He says, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us. We respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in our, his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, in other words, respond rightly to it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You have heard this often said. It's so true. And if we grasp it, uh, it's very, very uh, helpful in our life. God is concerned with our holiness, not with our happiness. Now that is a simple statement, and we just read it, right? God said that. It's not, not a cute little thing that we came up with. God made that point. And yet, again, we have so often... That we act, we have, we have branches of Christianity that promote that as if God's greatest purpose in this universe was that we would be happy and fulfilled. That's not his greatest purpose. It is that we would reflect his holiness and bring glory to his name. And yet that is not so that we could be miserable, it's so that we could be peaceful and that we could have joy and we could live wisely. So wisdom understands that God shows his love to us by correcting us, and very often by other people. However, rebuke and correction is not something we naturally in our sin receive well, is it? Not often. Sometimes, you know, we don't receive it well when we come around. Uh, Trish knows that usually if she has to rebuke me that I'm going to pout and act like a kid, but hopefully by the end of the day or an hour or two, I'll come back around and say, honey, you were right. Please forgive me. I hate it when you're right. <laughs> but she is. More often than I am by a long shot. But what are at least three reasons? And I just, just for here, because this is how we gain wisdom. What are at least three reasons that we don't like rebuke? Let me just mention them to you. One is because, and, and one reason we don't rebuke others when it needs, it requires it, uh, is because we have a false idea of love. A false idea of love. We have this false idea of love that anything that's confrontational, anything that would make someone feel bad, must be mean or uncaring or unloving. We don't address sin because we don't want to hurt their feelings. We don't, or who am I to address it? And those kind of things, which is really sometimes just we don't want them to think ill of us. But sometimes we don't rebuke or receive rebuke because it's a false idea of love. Why are you judging me? Don't judge me. I know that's said jokefully sometimes, but it is used by the world very often to say I'm immune to any correction. And any kind of correction in my life must be only because of your pride and your unloving heart. So we accept all things. So we don't, we don't call out the sin, sexual sin. We don't call out the sin of pride and dishonesty and disobedience and so forth. Because it's a false idea of love, but that is not the wisdom of Scripture. Let me just give you a few here, and just you can uh, listen to some of these. Uh, Proverbs 27, 6. Uh, don't try to follow along, I'm going to jump around. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, 
If you have a friend who rebukes you, you should love that friend more than anyone because they cared enough for your soul. And if you're a wise person, according to Solomon, you will receive that as both their love for you, but ultimately as an expression of God's love for you. We should receive that well, even if it hurts in the moment, and it does. Proverbs 10.8, the wise of heart will receive commands, but a babbling fool will be ruined. The wise of heart will receive commands. It will receive instruction. Proverbs 13.10, through insolence comes nothing but strife, but wisdom is with those who receive counsel. With those who receive counsel. Proverbs 12, 15. Just listen. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes. Always right. Proverbs 13, 1. A wise son accepts his father's discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Does not listen to rebuke. The scoffer receives a rebuke and then attacks the rebuker, condemns them, shows them why they are wrong, why they are in no position to say anything to us, etc. But the humble person, even when a rebuke is done in a wrong way, and even when a rebuke could be done by somebody who totally did it in the wrong way, but the wise person says, I recognize that they did it in the wrong way, but I also recognize there might be some kind of truth in that, and I'll consider it. I'll think about it. Maybe there is something in my life that I'm not seeing that this person sees. Proverbs 15 says this, He, who, he whose ear listens to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. He who neglects discipline despises himself, but he who listens to reproof requires understanding, or acquires understanding. Acquires knowledge and understanding and acquires wisdom. When we are disciplined by the Lord, we should receive that discipline. Just a couple more. Listen to counsel and accept discipline, Proverbs 19. Listen to, verse 20, listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. So on and on it goes. And the reality is then that a loving friend, a loving God rebukes us. And so we have to... Remember that, because if we have a false idea of love that just says we go around accepting everybody for everything, we make no condemnatory statements, which that's our culture, right? That's our culture. We can't say anything is wrong because that's unloving. But the Christian realizes, no, there is right and there is wrong. And wrong resides in me because I still have sin remaining in me. So when I'm rebuked, when someone loves me enough to come alongside and say something, when God loves me enough to discipline me, then I receive that because I want wisdom. Two, another reason we often don't recept rebuke is because sin hates to be exposed. We hate to be exposed. The number one effort of sin is to remain hidden. Of course, we could also say this. One of the number one uh, examples of when a culture or a people are given over is when they're bold about their sin. So the Old Testament prophets rebuked Israel. It says, you don't even know how to be ashamed. You take your sin and you just flaunt it with arrogance to everybody to see. You don't even know how to be ashamed. You don't even know that you should be ashamed of what you're doing. And so that's true too. But very often, 
sin and at its heart, which is why sometimes the haughtiness is just a covering for lack of conviction. Good offense, the best defense is a good offense kind of a thing. But sometimes we, we don't like rebuke because it's embarrassing and our shame is exposed. And we want to hide our shame. We want to be viewed in a certain way. We want to be thought of in a certain way. And so we don't like to be exposed. Jesus said this, that the, uh, the darkness doesn't come to the light. Why? Because when it comes to the light, what happens? Its deeds are exposed as evil. Why does the LGBTQ movement want to silence the churches teaching the scripture? Why? Because it says that lifestyle is wrong. Because it says that's not God's way. It's not how you're going to flourish. It's not for the good of you or society, regardless of what feelings and emotions you may have. That's not unloving. What is that titled? Hate speech. It's the most loving speech in reality. We can do it in a hateful way, and for that we should be corrected. But just saying that is an expression of love. It's an expression of care. And so, one is because sin hates to be exposed. Third, quickly. Because of pride, and that goes with the other, the hate to be exposed, but it's because of pride. And the greatest danger that it resides in our heart are, I think the greatest spiritual danger that resides in the heart of man is self-righteousness. That is the greatest spiritual danger because it is by its own existence self-blinding. You can't see it. But pride works in the same way very often. Uh, and self-righteousness is a form of pride, of course. But the greatest danger is because of pride. And pride is dangerous because, again, it is blind to itself. Pride doesn't usually recognize pride. And so when rebuke comes along, and we in pride can sometimes respond to that with rejection because um, it brings us down and it humbles us. Just again, listen to just a few passages well, one we already mentioned, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes. And so if he's right in his own eyes, and then somebody who's wiser comes along and exposes the foolishness, what is the reaction? It is to be very upset. Proverbs 21.2, again, every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. One more, Proverbs 30, verse 12, there is the kind who is pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from his filthiness. And so sometimes we, we don't receive rebuke or people don't because of pride. Because of pride. So it's a false idea of love because sin hates to be exposed and because pride we like to think of ourselves as better than we actually are. But humility, he says here, the one who is walking wisely, the one who puts life in perspective, who realizes that it's, there's a shortness to it and a way to live that should develop character is humble. And this is at the heart of wisdom. And it knows that humility understands that rebuke is a part of growing in wisdom and character. One said this. This is, this is a great statement. Uh, As many sweet things are poison, so many bitter things are medicine. Isn't that great? As so many sweet things are poison, and that could just encompass the whole idea of sin. It comes with a sweetness. It comes with a beauty, a delightfulness. And yet it poisons. It corrupts. It has a pleasure, to be sure. But it's a pleasure that leads to death. Whereas righteousness has an immediate sometimes challenge and pain and difficulty and trial. But the end, it leads to life and joy and happiness. And so many sweet things are poison and so many bitter things are medicine. 
Just one other comment here, because this is as far as we're going to get. But we will finish next week. Is that this is why it is important as well. It's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. Is for this reason. Is for this reason. Or, or uh, is one way that we do that is this. Is by exposing ourselves continually to scripture. One of the functions of scripture. Do you remember this? One of the functions of scripture is actually rebuke. It's correction. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says this, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. God's word, one of the functions of the word of God is to reprove us. It is to correct us. It is to break us down and then lift us back up with greater wisdom as we learn and are trained in the ways of righteousness, is the idea. And so ex constantly exposing ourselves to Scripture is important. It's one of the ways that God rebukes us. It's also important then that we expose ourselves to a ministry of the Word in which rebuke and correction is a part of it. Listen to what he says. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And as we would evaluate a ministry, as we would evaluate a ministry, one of the, one of the points would be this. There are many. One of them is, does it confront human sin in light of the gospel but does it confront human sin and call us to holiness? Does it confront our sin and call us to holiness? A godly person, if many of us here can know the experience that when you're listening to a sermon uh, and you're hearing uh, a scripture explained and you're convicted, what do you, you love it. You don't run from it and go, I hate that preacher. Look how judgmental they are. I hope not. Which maybe, well, anyway, I... But the point is, is that we love that. We love it when the scripture and when the preaching of the word of God and hopefully when another brother or sister in Christ comes alongside and exposes us. We love that. We're like, thank you. Thank you, Lord. I needed that. I needed that. So we don't run from it, but the heart of wisdom receives it. That's why we want to be under a ministry and, and involve ourselves with friends and other Christians and people who will have that role in our life. To, to think that the goal of ministry and the goal of our declaration of the gospel is merely to make one feel better, to be happier, to not be discouraged, uh, is actually a cruelty to their soul. It's actually cruelty. Because it doesn't give them what they most need. It gives them something that's sweet, but it's poison. Rather than giving them something that's bitter, but is good for their soul. And so to seek only that which makes us more satisfied in ourselves, or draws us to think of God primarily in relation to only the good he can do for us, in meeting our felt needs, is not wisdom, it's foolishness. If we want to have only our ears tickled and our heart unhumbled, is the path to foolishness. But to... Listen to rebuke, to hear it, and to receive it from the word and the ways that God in his providence brings us is, is wisdom. And so we thank God for that ministry in our lives. For as the crackling of the pot, thorn, bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool, and this too is futility. 
That's the basic idea here is this, that the, the laughter of the fool, he's speaking here again, not that laughter is sin, I hope not, but he's saying here that the laughter of the fool, the laughter that's the product of foolishness, of ungodliness, of a lack of the fear of God in the context of Scripture. That, that foolish kind of laughter of the world, that, that foolish kind of frivolity and boisterousness that you might hear when you go by a nightclub at night or a bar or a wild backyard party where the kegs are set up and whatever else goes on. That kind of laughter. That's the laughter of fools. There's all kinds of laughter of fools. It's basically that laughter that is temporary and it fades away, but... It doesn't actually accomplish anything but to make one forget their troubles for a while, for a temporary time. He says that's not the way of wisdom. In fact, it's vanity. He's speaking here really more generally of the frivolity of the world, of the spiritually foolish, that reject sober reflection, that reject sober reflection. He says to live that way is vanity. It's vanity. And, and the wise who recognize that this life is short and there's an accounting for this life, avoid that kind of frivolity. Avoid that kind of distraction. That don't run immediately to the things that will make us forget our troubles, but run immediately to understand the reality and cause of them and take them before the light of God's word, before the gospel, and grow. I mean, how many of you as unbelievers, and certainly we know that, and some of us can relate to this, what do you want to do? Things will go bad. Let's go to the bar. Let's get drunk. Let's get a few beers, right? Let's forget about the troubles of the world. Let's take drugs. Let's get involved in all kinds of activities that will make us forget about the pain that I'm feeling inwardly. And it has an outward look of fun, is what he's saying is, but don't be drawn into that. Don't be drawn into that kind of deceit because there's something better something more lasting, something more permanent, something that wisdom can bring. And that is the knowledge of God. And in our context, it can bring us to Christ. He says to this, Jesus did, Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. And woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. You shall mourn and weep. So he's talking about not laughter. We should be happy. We should have those times of joking and laughing, but he's saying the laughter of the fool, where that laughter really becomes just a covering for sin and for a replacement of dealing with the realities of life. And he says this too is futility because it doesn't make anything go away. Somebody who wants to drown their sorrows in drink or drugs, they wake up and guess what's still there? Their sorrows. And now they've just added to it very often because of the foolishness of what they've done right out of their normal senses. And so, he says, the wise person, instead of going that route, will receive rebuke, will receive correction in order to gain wisdom and to live wisely. And again, to know the true joy and the blessing that God has intended for us. Well, we're going to end it there and we'll pick it up and finish this section uh, next week. But let us finish there thinking about our own lives and say... What kind of name will you and I have if we were to die today? What kind of confidence do you have of the work of God in your life that you could say with Paul, it's very better to depart, very much better to depart and be with the Lord? How is your life ordered and your priorities ordered in such a way that you reflect 
kingdom priorities and eternal realities and priorities? How is it ordered in that way? How are your affections being shaped by that reality? Is death something you avoid the reality of or is it something you embrace? Not again the circumstances of it and all of that, but as the reality of it, knowing that it is, it, it reminds us of the temporary reality, nature of this life, but the full glories of the life that is to come. And let me ask you, is it shaping your character, these realities? Is it shaping your character? How do you receive rebuke? Does it anger you or does it humble you? Is it something you chafe at or is it something you receive as a good expression of God's love for you and the love of others? So we can ask our things ourselves, but this is the path of wisdom. Let me pray. And then we'll remember the foundation of all of our wisdom and all of our desires and our life the gospel of Christ in the table. So pray with me and then we'll remember the elements together. Father, thank you for your word which instructs us and teaches us. And there is Lord, so much that we need to be taught and instructed in. Lord, help us to order our priorities rightly. Solomon reminds us by inspiration of your spirit of the reality of death. So often we read in the Scriptures of the New Covenant, how we are to be driven by your return, O Christ, the fact that you will return, the fact that you will establish your kingdom. And when we grasp that to the deeper and deeper levels, we can say with Paul, I consider the the afflictions, the troubles, and all of those things of this world only light, because they are preparing for him a glory that is to come that is far better, far more wonderful than any of the things we may endure here. Or we can think of this in relation to our nation. All of the joys and the blessings that we've enjoyed here, but we see how tenuous and fragile they really are. But we're reminded that that's okay because you are in control of these things and whatever you bring is ultimately going to be used as we respond in faith to shape us to be like our Savior who laid down his life for us. So help us to think biblically. Use your word to shape and renew our minds so that we could do so. We do thank you for your many good gifts and your kindnesses to us and your mercies to us and the forgiveness of our sin that strengthens and encourages us in this world and until we go home. And so now use your table to that end as well to remind us of the glories of the gospel and the hope that we have in Christ. Pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. So if we would take...